Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is uh, Jim Wunsch. I'm the uh, host for um, this recording for the New Books Network. I'm a professor emeritus uh, of historical studies at uh, Empire State College, SUNY. I guess I'm also uh, emeritus from uh, uh, a big bus tour guide in New York City uh, on big bus. Uh, So retired in both areas but still curious and interested in in cities. And welcome to those. I guess if this were an academic institution or a mental institution, um, we'd uh, be in the urban studies department. Now, uh, conventionally at this, uh, in this department and in New Books Network, uh, we usually have uh, um, very serious professors whose books have been published by, um, by, um, academic, major academic presses, but in, in today walks a somewhat un, unconventional source, uh, and that is, uh, we'll be talking to our guest is uh, Julia Wirtz, and her, her credentials are, are not exactly um, uh, uh, um, academic. Um, no, not at all. They're not. So listen, Julia, I first I got to do the rap sheet on you. Which, which is much more pleasing than than most uh, guests for the new books and network. A little anti-intellectualism here, if you'll allow me. Uh, so this woman, uh, uh, Julia, made her debut, I guess, uh, with a publication called <clears throat> The Fart Party, um, uh, published in two volumes by Atomic Press, uh, 2007 to 8. Uh, I guess that's a comic strip, right? Yeah, yeah, just four-panel comic strip. There we go. And Drinking at the Movies came next at 2010, published by Random House. Another comic strip? Yeah, a little longer, but pretty much just same jokes and stuff. Same. And then comes Infinite Weight um, by Koyama Press, 2012. Uh, and after that comes our book uh, for discussion today. But there's going to be, uh, there's another one we want to talk about a little, Julia. But the the book for for our urban historians, students of cities, uh, students of places, really, is called Tenements, Towers, Trash, 
an unconventional illustrated history of New York City, published by a Black Dog and Leventhal, uh, actually a distinguished small press, now I guess a part of the Hachette um, chain uh, conglomerate. But uh, they're famous for doing be beautiful books, and I have to tell our listeners that this is indeed a, not only a mighty book, but a mighty beautiful one. And then, uh, Julia, I, I know you're interested in this book because this is the one This is the one that followed, not what I call a sequel exactly. I haven't read it yet, but I want to. It's called Impossible People, a completely average um, re recovery story. Again, Black Dog and 2023. Julia Wirtz, it, it, listen, it's a pleasure to have you on the New Books Network. Uh, welcome. And um, you, you're, um, uh, it's an unconventional book, and it's an unconventional author. But I, I guess I, I want to start because as a, a worried parent, actually, uh, you, you could be my daughter. And, um, so, so how did you get started in this monumental study of New York City, a monumental unconventional story of New York City? At a fairly early age. Yeah. Um, well, I started making comics when I was 20, which actually is pretty late in the game. Um, but uh, like you, with, like it's been very clear, I, I don't have an academic background. So everything I, I've done has just kind of been winging it. I don't, I don't hold that against it, Julia. Uh, probably for you, but go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I think to my, it's, it's not to my detriment. Um, yeah, I just kind of started making comics, really pursued it went for it without any idea what I was doing, uh, moved to New York and fell in love with the city. How old were you? How old were you um, when you moved to New York? Uh, 24. Okay. Okay. Well, and uh, you didn't know what you were going to do there, did you? I had no idea. I was bartending, waiting tables, working at coffee shops, um, doing comics just on the side. So, well, but with the, were the parents worried? I'm looking at this from another point of view. That's very sweet to talk about. I am 40 now, so it's a little it's a little funny to well, worry about. Your parents. point of view has changed too, has it not? Yeah, I'm a parent now, so I I, I understand. Also... Yeah. Is this what <laughs> um, you want for your little boy? <laughs> God, no. <laughs> uh, um, okay. If he wants to be a cartoonist, I would support it, but um, I hope he. He finds something a little more stable. It's a, it's a very fun career, but it is not stable. Um, but we'll see. He's only three. He's got, he's got time to decide. He's got time I, to become an accountant. Uh. Yeah. My well, my mom she she didn't want me to move to New York mostly because it was just far away. Um, yes. She was not sure about comics, but she was never um, vocally unsupportive of comics. She was just like, make sure you have a backup plan, which I did not. So thank God, comics worked out. Because I did not follow her advice. They 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 really they really did work out because the book uh, and it's a big it's a big book. If it came through the transom, it might clobber you. Actually, it's about three pounds, but it, it's I based on. I had to carry it on the subway home after I did book events in New York, and I was like, "Sorry, it's so heavy." Well, it's a terrific. Uh, physically, it's a terrific volume uh, in all ways, and the illustrations are great, and, and the writing is 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 lively. And it is, uh, if we need to give you an imprimatur, that has to, uh, that is pretty pretty high tone. Well, you did. This is drawn in part from your work for the for the New Yorker and Harper's Magazine. So now now we've 
Now we now we put you in another league and club, as you discovered when you went to the drugstore and you said, I, I, I'm with the New Yorker, and all of a sudden they become more and more agreeable. But yeah, that was, the New Yorker gave me the credibility that my mother was waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm uh, probably your listeners are waiting for too, in some way. This is a, um, a we, we, we can't deny these, but I wanted what I wanted to do. It, this is a big book, and actually, it's a hard book to summarize, but. Like a good academic, I I, should, I want to. Academics are afraid that they'll that they won't cover the material, Julia. You know, so here I am. I, so for our listeners, I I wanted to outline and and, and interrupt me because you know I have a big mouth. But uh, um, I, here's what here's what the woman has covered here: uh, neighborhoods, uh, including Greenpoint or Greenpoint. I don't know East Village, Times Square, Harlem, Carroll Gardens, and many neighborhoods in the Bronx. Women rebels were difficult. Now, this is quite a difference. See, Typhoid Mary, Madame Restell, the abortionist Nellie Bly, and that murderous woman Lizzie Halliday. Okay, shops. Yeah, she she's not dealing with the tall towers that are magnificent. She's dealing where place where ordinary people go: cigar stores, uh, bookstores, video, particularly Kim's video, and movie theaters. Food, uh, egg creams, pizza. That's Ray's uh, uh, food carts, tap water from this uh, Jello and Bloody Marys, real estate. Uh, it, now this is a wonderful part of the book, which people are real estate mad in New York, but it goes the layout of houses and holdout buildings, um, and then waste disposal, Bottle Beach, Fresh Kills, the boat graveyard in Staten Island, and street craning vehicles. Subway and pneumatic tubes and the world underground. Small details, street furniture, uh, the World's Fair, um, lampposts, and so forth and so on. Wow. This is a, this is, that's quite, I, I'm sure I left some out, but n now I've covered the material for you. So, that was, so that was more than I even remember. So, man, that's, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but you start with, you have an interesting angle and eye, and you had the courage to start with, on the, was it the 1969 World's Fair? And and uh, what about that? Why did you start there with the lampposts of all things? Um, and mostly I felt that the story of the World's Fair had been told so many times, like, you know, every story in New York. That's but, like Robert Moses. Well, yeah, both Robert Moses. Actually. Yeah. Go ahead. It's like I didn't need to tell the same story over and over. But I was, like I say in the in the book, you know, I had um, gotten in contact with someone who saved the lampposts because I first spotted the lampposts when they were removed and relocated in Penn Hills Resort in Pennsylvania. So I saw them there and then got in touch. The person who bought them and like saved them got in touch with me. We ended up striking up a friendship. I'm still friends with them today. Uh, he proposed to his partner through the comic. It, it was just a totally different angle than anyone else had. But within that framework, I could then tell the story of the World's Fair. So I was just trying to approach it from a, a unique angle that I didn't seek out. It just kind of fell in my lap. So I got lucky with that one. You you, you were lucky with a lot of them, I think. But, but then we switch gears, if I might, with you. And you go to, um, this is quite a different subject, these difficult women in New York. How, how did you happen to choose... Uh, 
uh, one of my favorites, Typhoid Mary, Madame Restrell, and, and so forth, uh, Nellie Bly. What, uh, you're a bit of a rebel yourself, a difficult woman, no doubt. But why did you choose these gals? And uh, uh, what attracted you to those? Uh, well, I don't know if I believe in difficult women. I believe in women who were bold enough to do good work, like Madame Restelle was, some, you know, giving abortions for women who were unable to access that. And I think that that was very important. Um, and she ultimately was cast out of society for it. And, you know, Nellie Bly was doing a bunch of journalism about the conditions of the asylum in New York. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these women were labeled difficult, um, but they were brilliant. And I think that when people tell the stories of New York, it's always like, you know, Robert Moses or what all like it's mostly men and it, no one goes around calling men difficult, you know, but. Uh, well, I you, you got me there. I was the one. Don't don't blame all men for my uh, discretion indiscretions. But well, uh, well, Lizzie well, Halliday was more than difficult, my friend. I mean, it whoa, was the <laughs> Thank you. That one was just a fun one to throw in there. Um, I wasn't really trying to do a theme of it until I realized once it was all put together, it was a bunch of stories about these women. Um, but I didn't really realize that until I had finished that section. Uh, I just thought there were interesting stories that not a lot of people were telling or they were telling them, it was really quick you know, typhoid mary she was definitely a difficult woman she wouldn't wash her hands and everyone was like just wash your hands just wash <laughs> so, your hands she was like no so yeah fair she was and there. and let let, let let us say that she killed people as a result of not washing her hands because she suffered yeah. from from typhoid uh yes. or she carried yeah. typhoid yeah, but terrible woman. I that was that's fine. That's fair. Well, but and and but her her punishment is still to this day. I'm I taught typhoid Mary to my students, uh, um, a disproportionately number of um, uh, women, by the way, and they said with some justification that typhoid Mary should not have been sentenced to a lifetime of incarceration on North Brother Island. Because she, because men who are also carriers did not get that position, but um, that is true. I don't think she should have been sentenced, and I also think she was. I mean, the public and her were not that educated about disease at that point, so I don't know how much information she really had. Except in her defense, maybe she just saw a bunch of people telling her to stop doing her job, and she didn't believe she was spreading it or was willful ignorance. Who knows? But I do think she was um, unjustly punished for for what she did. The, the the one that I, I like, and I have a couple of granddaughters now, teenagers, so I always try to give them good and bad examples of how, how to go wrong and not go wrong. I like Nellie Bly, though, because she really opens up, but shows what a good woman journalist can, what a good journalist can do, man or woman can do. And yeah, she, she was amazing. Like, everyone amazing. just sort of knew her for the uh, asylum stuff, but she did a bunch of other stuff and then went and, like, started her company afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, she was the great undercover journalist, and yeah. somehow fearless, absolutely fearless. She, yeah, she traveled all the way around the world. She'd like beg her editor to let her do it, and they did finally. And she turned it into a book. It's like a whole. She, I don't know. She's amazing. And then she married a rich man, right? I think. Well, an oil man, perhaps. <laughs> like Margaret Sanger. She took over a company after he died. So <laughs> that's right. 
Well, well, thanks for giving us these difficult, wild, and wonderful women. And I kind of, kind of think you're right. It for for I, I'm hoping that uh, um, academics here who are probably listening in more than students will see. Wow, this is a pretty good book to teach students who are maybe lost in the city. Uh, to teach them to see and to and to be inspired by uh, these these people who came before them. But then uh, you you go off again. Uh, and um, I want to talk to you a little bit about stores and and the the larger problem that you present, which is nostalgia. There's a there's a you you're are you are you nostalgic for the old New York? You, you draw beautifully. You recreate whole scenes and situations of 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 the New York that's lost. And I I felt sad, but mm, I don't know what what are you doing here to us. <laughs> Well, it's tricky. I don't know if you can be, if someone can truly be nostalgic for a time they didn't experience. I obviously did not experience New York in the 1800s or, you know. <laughs> well, I was that. I'm that old. No, no. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah. And, and, and I don't know. Nostalgia is an interesting thing. Um, Jeremiah Moss, who wrote a wonderful book about New York, we were on a panel once and he was saying that like, Someone was saying nostalgia is dangerous because it doesn't allow for change and it doesn't allow for people to um, sort of see bad parts of an old, an older city. Um, and he was like, no, it's important. It's important to like remember all the parts of it. And if you have nostalgia, that means you love something. So if you love something, you care about it and then you care about it. Well, the future do, do you wait, do you love it or do you love it? This is this is tricky now. Do you love it? Or do you love it in retrospect? Uh, you know, when you get both, yeah, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I like, love New York how it is now. I love the New York that I moved to 15 years ago, um, and I love parts of the New York I never experienced, but just was able to, you know, see through urban exploring or walking around the city. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not hugely problematic, but it's it's hard to... See all the what I what I what I liked about though is that it, there is a, I don't know I'm susceptible to nostalgia too the world we have lost and because I'm a historian and you're attracted to, to what was once although there is a, a wonderful book called the good old days were terrible uh, which is an antidote to that uh, um, but um, um, uh, it's um, it, it it is an interesting problem. And you invoke this nostalgia in in in, in great ways. I think uh, shops, the old drugstores, for example. And uh, um, I, I guess the one, I guess for me, it's you love Kim's video, uh, but um, I only uh, knew the tail end of because the most of the time too. Yeah, yeah. I think shops though. The nostalgia for the shops is uh, for me. It's more. It's aesthetic. And it's local, like community stuff. Like I just loved all the old signs and the lettering and how they really decorated everything differently. So there's the visual aspect to it, and then I like the community aspect of local stores, you know, because most of that's been replaced with like AT and T and just boring, non-community oriented stuff. It, when you go back to New York, I, I guess they let you back in, don't they? Um, <laughs> there. Well, well, do you go? Do you, it, <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that. that um, the, um, it, you have been back, right? Are there any stores that you're going to make a beeline towards uh, when you go back? 
uh, anything particular that? Yeah, I went back um, in May of this year after being gone for three years. Um, the first, the last time before the pandemic, I went to New York in January 2020 was just a date that does not need explanation. And I was six months pregnant. And I was like, I'll be back next year after I have the baby. Of course, the pandemic happened. I didn't get back for over three more years. And a lot of the places I knew were gone. Um, but sometimes it would just be like, I wanted to go to my old coffee shop. And it was just a different coffee shop. But it was still a local coffee shop. So sometimes they change. And they're still exactly this, the same. You know, they had the same pastry supplier and everything. And I was like, oh, that's fine. Um, this is fine. I'll accept that change. What about them? Um, so there's food, uh, movie theaters, clubs, all of that. Is it pinball was a terrific subject that you now you weren't you were after the pinball era, weren't you? I was, but I lived in Greenpoint when you could play pinball at the laundromat. So <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. So that was a fun thing. And that's still there, I think. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I walked up to that part. Um, bookstores, though, I do. I always go right back to my favorite bookstores, and they're all still there. Like, which is great. Uh, and the you go to the well. The Strand is, I guess, the most famous one in Manhattan. And but the little bookstores in Brooklyn are still there, hanging hanging on. Yeah, Erding uh, is my favorite. I always go straight there. Um, and they they're still they're doing pretty good actually. So I was really happy to see that most of the independent bookstores had survived. Well, and and thanks to I think uh, books like yours, which uh, um, I don't really want to read your book on on my Kindle. I mean, yeah, no, I comics in general I think are terrible to read on the Kindle. So hopefully. Yeah, uh, books like big coffee table books and art books and um, comics can really bring people into bookstores. I still buy all my comics from bookstores just because I'm not going to buy them um, on the, yeah, I'm not going to look at them on my iPad. That's terrible. Now, one of the things that New Yorkers are most interested in is is real estate. Huh. Uh, they never get enough of it. And there's a lot of real estate envy. And I think your book, is very strong on the problem of not just the exterior buildings, which we read, you know, the fancy architectural critics are always dealing with that. They never say what it's like to work in the building, of course, but you're good both inside and out. I, and you have br brilliant disquisitions on the size where, of apartments where people live. Could you talk a little bit? Well, you didn't have a very big apartment yourself. No, I didn't. Mine was uh, 300 square feet and it was a sub-basement apartment. I had windows. It was love. I spent 10 wonderful years there. Um, but during the time I was in New York, the tiny house movement really took off. Um, micro living. Tiny house. What is, a what is a tiny house? How tiny is tiny? I guess I would actually be more like micro apartment. They're, they're looking at like anywhere from 80 to 300 square feet would be kind of considered like a micro apartment. 80 square feet is like you're living in a closet. But but I just, I always read the real estate blogs and look at real estate stuff. And I walk all the real estate agents, like re take all these words and spin them and make it, frame it like it was such, like you should be thrilled to live in 80 square feet. And look, you can build a loft and double your square footage. And like, you can live in New York and it's a one. And it's like, it's a terrible, terrible way to live. 
but they really spun it and it was so fascinating to watch that and i lived perfectly fine at 300 square feet like it was no problem obviously i was single and that was fine for a, a single person i wouldn't be able to pull it off now but it's just fun to watch what real estate markets can do and how they change names of neighborhoods and how they spin it to be a, like a you should be so privileged to live in this tiny closet by a river that's full of sewage i guess people feel that because they still are people young people in particular still want to come to new york don't they and pay extremely high prices for very little yeah it's, it's and that's really all you can afford anyways which is fine it's just it was funny to watch it become so common and pervasive and then just take on like a world of its own. What you didn't uh, talk about is a, a newer phenomenon. I, I don't know whether, but people, because of their small spaces, have begun to use the coffee shop as a study hall and, and a living room. I don't know whether you picked up on that in your time, but I think it's, I, I'm only guessing, but I think it's precisely because they're living in such confined areas that they they have study halls and in uh, Starbucks for, for the whole day. Yeah, I mean, I used to spend a full day in a coffee shop drawing, and I, that's a wonderful upside of having small living spaces. And I'm not even trying to say we shouldn't have small living spaces. I think we have way of living spaces in general. Um, but yeah, anything that kind of pushes you out into the community is good. So if you can't work in your house, go work at a coffee shop or the library. We go to the library and work in the room with the green lamps. Um, that was really fun. But back in the day, and you're pretty good on back in the day, I don't remember people going to coffee shops and and camping out there. That's an that's 50 years old, but now in Europe, I think that was a different a different matter. But I think that that is a new phenomenon in a way. But that is because the internet, because now people can work from coffee shops. You are right, though. In Europe, people will go and sit for hours at coffee shops and talk. And in America, coffee shops sprang up. It was coffee and go to work, like just move on. Um, and then as soon as you know Wi-Fi started to pop up, people stayed longer. But there's not like they're staying and communicating necessarily. You know, they're working. So it's very different. Very different. Very different. A nice, interesting thing. Well, um, it, it, one of the things you do that people don't recognize, I, I know on, on my, when I was a big bus tour guide, I used to say, well, the real action is underground. And you get off my bus at the end and you go down in into into the subway to, to see another aspect of the city and and you do this so well but the surprising thing is you you deal with the subway as um, as an old feature of the city which it is you also deal with those pneumatic tubes where they were sending letters through people don't know much about that oh i just thought that was such a funny funny way to do things like i yeah and i know more most people don't know that they have the pneumatic tubes went all over the city, and at one point they sent a cat through them, um, which I think people would be very angry about now. The cat survived, um, but it, it's such a like an amusing system, and I they still are in work today. Sometimes if you go to a Costco, you'll see them the pneumatic tube down, and they'll put a chunk of money and send it right up to the offices, and that's the pneumatic tube. So we still use them. That's right, and they used them in the New York Public Library for quite a while, didn't they? And, and as you 
as you point out, they tried to do it with people at the beginning of the subway, didn't they? They had. <laughs> they didn't work out so well. I think they couldn't get them very far. So it's like the whole point of the subway is you go really far, but. You go, you go really far and fast. And I, I suppose um, I feel that that it's the subway, above all, uh, along with the densities of the city that really define New York and set it apart from, from any other place in the United States. That It's that way. You don't need a car in most of New York, although, and, and you, do need, you do need a car elsewhere. I think yeah, that. I, mean, I, lived in, I lived in San Francisco for a while, and the fact that the subway basically just goes in one straight line is wild because you can't use it. You're like, I can't, what well, live in a totally different part of the neighborhood? And then the, you can, I use buses there, but you know, then it's the city and you sit in traffic forever. So when I got to New York, and oh, also in San Francisco, you pay by how far you're going. So a ride to a different borough can cost like $16. Whereas I, when he moved to New York, it was like a dollar seventy-five. Now it's like two fifty, which is fine. And you can go so far, and it, like in so many directions, and it blew my mind. And I just couldn't. I believe that others like why don't all cities have? I mean, I understand why, but like, well, it's yeah. And I often tease my um, colleagues and friends in other cities who claim they're living in a great urban environment and they're very proud of it. And then I ask them if they have a car, and because they're they're of course they have a car because without a car you're you're in trouble almost all of the country so that really is what what sets aside us um us the new yorker and you're more you you've earned your stripes as a new yorker kid uh so but um i, I want to get I, I think this book has more meaning i don't think it's to me you know and it's not your book anymore remember it's for people like me because it's our book uh, I, I'm the reader, and I, I was moved by your book, particularly on, on, when I read it again, because we, um, about that this is not really just about New York, and and the the, the 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 beauty of your book is, I think it's about other places. I think it's because you show that it, it, you love and understand the ordinary, and the ordinary, and that's a very good thing, particularly if you're teaching students. They don't all come from New York. They're from all different parts of the country. And, and I think they're from what we, we might think of as terribly boring places. Boring. A lot of New York is boring, too, actually. Shh. Okay? But you, te you teach in this book people how to see. And it's, you're, the glory is, is that you can, you can sketch. You, can, you see through your hand and eye. And th that's what... I, I hope that the people listening today who are teaching urban history, urban studies, sociology, and, and art um, will see, I don't know, is that, am I pushing you too far here? But I think it's about seeing. That's why I did this book. I was trying to teach people to see every little thing around them. Think about every street, every shop, every item in the context of its history and what it, I mean, and it can't, I, the thing is, I had to really reel it back in that book because you can spiral out. I was like, you know, so let's take the old fire, the old fire alarms that I was obsessed with. So for a while, I was like researching the history of that, which leads to the history of the fire. Then I was like, well, where does this iron, wrought iron that we build the fire alarms come from? And then you can just get a whole slippery slope. And I was like, I can't go down that 
route in this book, but I've definitely done it in my own life and lost just hours to research of like basically where raw materials even come from, like all around the world. And I just, I just watched so many people in New York put their headphones on. I wear my headphones in New York. It's fair. Put their headphones on, walk straight ahead, not looking at anything over and over and over. And just, I just want people to like see where they are, think about their where they are, what where these things come from in their context of their place in history, and then be able to spin that into other places. So when I left in New York, I'm a city kid. I love a city. But when I left, I went back home to, I live in a very, uh, I, in a small town now, and I'm looking out my windows and it's just trees. It's like very out there in nature. And I didn't like it. And I was like, I had forgotten that I liked it as a child. And I had to reteach myself by employing the same things I did in that book, which is just walking around, first not seeing anything, and then seeing all the little things, and then researching the history of the native plants and the trees and forests and how trees talk to each other. I had to learn again how to appreciate the environment I was in, following my own tactics for the city. And, and that's so we want kids and old and young to when they go out of their house to keep their eyes open to the to the to the beauty because that even even in the humblest a cul-de-sac in the most remote and boring suburb there's there's much to be seen there three of suburbs is so fascinating so you can even get into that you know if you're just looking at the yeah the worst treeless subway or like you know not subway um suburb you can think of and then trace it all the way back to why we even created suburbs in America in the beginning. And that's a whole thing to get into. That's well. But I don't think that book would sell as well as this one, which I hope is sold very well. I have purchased and read at least four books on the American suburb. (laughs) We need need more books about suburbs because that's where people live. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't know if we books about the suburbs i don't think i need to draw that i'm buying a cartoon you do you do that but but before i leave you this is um they couldn't stop you writing and and drawing and and you did a a final book um listen you you it wasn't all beer and skittles for you in greenpoint you you had a tough time as a young woman there you want to tell us a little bit about that and how the next book came along and, and why we should read that one too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So the next book, um, Impossible People, is about uh, me needing to go into recovery, just drinking way too much. And Greenpoint plays a huge role in this book as just the backdrop. So there's still city stuff in did, there. Did Did the city drive you to drink? No, 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 no. Okay. No. okay. Uh, I, had, I had problems way before that. Um, uh-huh. it made it easy, you know, if you don't drive a car, <laughs> it's <laughs> you go get shit faced every night and not worry about it. Um, but I, yeah, I don't blame the city at all for it. And I thank the city for making recovery really easy because there are people everywhere in the city of all walks of life, of all ages, of all everything who are in recovery. So you can find your people anywhere. And that's a lot harder to do in a small town. It is. It is. So that's what the next book and and it's uh, av- available where all all great and good books are sold and even some that are not great or good, right? But th- th- this we look we look forward to and we hope it does well. And um, well, listen, I 
I'm I'm glad I love the city and I know you do too and it's always fun to talk about it but but this was a special treat and thanks for writing the book and good luck with with the new one out now um, so I'll, listen Julia I'll see you on the G train how's that <laughs> we'll be waiting a long time because it's still the slowest train thanks again bye bye.